a monster named after a cat infusing with a teenage girl in hopes of bringing balance to a decadent human society. It's Gamera 3, Revenge of Iris. That's one way of putting it. That's that's one way of putting it, Alex. We have a guest coming on in our podcast, Alex. Yeah. Uh, and this guest is Steve Rifle, uh, author, commentator, kaiju expert. In his Gamera 3 commentary, he did call it a consummation. So that's Ooh. pretty suggestive. It is, which is... <laughs> I have thought so. <laughs> but welcome back to the Monsters vs. Men podcast, where we are trying our best to stay alive here at the bargain basement of the Kaiju Podcasting Airwaves. Is it Iris or Iris, Alex? I'm, I'm going to say Iris throughout this podcast. And I'm uh, going to say Iris. Yeah, so if you're looking for consistency, this is not the podcast for you. Nope. Go to a different <laughs> podcast, please. But... <laughs> Honestly, Alex, we're going to get right into it because I'm excited for Steve uh, to be on, and I know that he's going to have a lot of great things to say. So let's go ahead and get right into this, shall we? Yeah, break it, break it, break down the movie for me. All right, I'll break it down. Gamera Three: Revenge of Iris represents Shusuke Kaneko's answer to "Who is Gamera?" Where Gamera, guardian of the universe, represented a new frontier for the series, and Gamera Two reached new technical heights through Higuchi's effects. Gamera 3 feels more contained, maybe even more personal. Now, Alex, when I first asked you about this trilogy, when I first heard about Gamera, which was, believe it or not, less than a year ago, you said they were good, but possibly overrated. Mm. Do you still feel this way about Gamera 3? Or, to put it another way, does the finale of the Heisei trilogy reach a kaiju pinnacle? Or do your thoughts remain more cynical? So, I've actually been thinking a lot lately about certain words that are frequently used uh, just in regards to talking about movies and really anything. But I've been thinking about what's it mean to say overrated. And I, I think I'm going to kind of step away from the term. I've, I've been known to use it on several episodes of our podcast. And I, I, the reason mm. I'm stepping away from it is because I think it discourages conversation about the movie it's it's more like this negative term to shut down what someone else maybe has to say hang on alex are you are you, are you stepping back and being thoughtful about your decisions yes <laughs> yes <laughs> i think it might be a good thing good thing to do i i, I want to try to refrain from using the words overrated i'm just gonna say about how what would i feel about the this film and i, I think that this yeah. film is an excellent finale for the series and it wraps a lot of threads up in a nice bow as a finisher for a trilogy, I think it nails it really well. Mm-hmm. Now, there are there is something to be said uh, for one thing I've noticed online, and that's a lack of criticism about this movie. Yeah, I'm not going to harp too much on my criticisms, but there are some weaknesses in this film that could have easily been mitigated, and I never hear about. Yeah. Now, I think that's that's something that's common. Once a film receives a lot of praise and acclaim, it's almost like we can't criticize it anymore. And I don't think that's fair. Like, I think part of our show is 
we can express our opinions and we're going to express our opinions no matter what. So, but to be honest with you, like my initial reaction was to be a little bit guarded, uh, to be honest, because of how fans have built this film up. Right. So yeah, like it was kind of easy for me to linger on some of those things that could be potential weaknesses. For me, it was, you know, the relatively small amounts of monster action, maybe a couple of scenes with slightly outdated CGI, the pacing of the middle third, which I think is caused by our two side characters that don't, that could be combined or, or done something slightly Mm -hmm. different with. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would also say uh, the mythology it's, I, I like it, but for a casual audience member, the mythology is going to drag the film down a bit. I think as a Kaiju fan, I could really get into it, but Mm -hmm. I think the mythology for a casual audience might drag it down just a tad. But as I personally take a step back, I actually see this film with a whole lot of heart and depth and mystery. Um, So my favorite film trilogy of all time is Lord of the Rings. And though my personal favorite of Lord of the Rings is Fellowship of the Ring, Return of the King, the last film, is often as often praised the most as the culmination of the trilogy. And I think that's also the case here as this film really brings the first two films into full focus and provides an open ended send off that I will also give high acclaim to. Mm, Yeah. I mean, the trilogy definitely deserves some praise. Uh, Like the films itself. I think it has, it's art from this like typical nuclear commentary to something much more substantial and worth talking about. Gamera's presence is substantially weighted in this film. He clearly is a greater good type of monster, but it's easy for humanity to forget all of his good deeds in the wake of something that their human kind of small mindedness just can't comprehend. Like he's not evil or malicious, but because of this one bad event, they kind of forget about the other times he saved them. Mm. Uh, And there's consequence to his existence. Now, how good or bad it is, is up to the viewer. And as we see up to the characters to see if they, their own, I guess, moral scale of what is good or bad. That also leads to this awesome ending that actually, I don't know the consensus on it, uh, but Mm -hmm. I really like it. Like the final battle leading up to it is really great. The close quarters Kaiju battle that all takes, (laughs) takes place within five feet the whole time uh, is actually pretty cool, but it's the ending that really makes the film. It's really open ended. And funny enough, uh, my original viewing of the film I took away that humanity was probably going to be doomed, even though I didn't want it to feel that way. But this time around, the film really feels a lot more hopeful. I feel like Gamera is going to win. And actually, I Mm -hmm. think his environment around him signifies that he probably is going to be able to, because he's got the resources around him to take, to take home the W. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I agree with you. Um, I think this film is the most artsy kaiju film I've seen. Well, maybe not 1954 Godzilla, but modern mm-hmm. kaiju films for sure. And it borders on the expression expressionistic at various times. I love how Kaneko uses the flames to paint a visual of the difficult journey that Gamera seems to be on. Because mm-hmm. here's the thing about this film. Not only does it contain human character development, it also contains monster character development. 
And those flames are used to showcase the ties, the bonds built between human and Kaiju, between Gamera and Asagi and Ayana and Iris. Mm-hmm. Even the monster battles, they feel more intimate, as you mentioned. They're really close quarters. They're more personal this time around with such high stakes in the Shibuya set piece. And then the Kyoto train station destruction. It's all intimate in nature. And then there is Iris. Uh, on Letterboxd, there's this user, MKR, who described Iris as Lovecraftian, a tentacled harbinger of doom. I see Iris more like an Evangelion, Eva, mm. Angel combo. Certainly nihilistic, but even more menacing with its smooth curves instead of jagged edges. Yeah, yeah, he's really cool. And, and, you know, you just mentioned jagged edges, which I'm just thinking about when I hear jagged edges, I think about this new, hands down, best camera design yet. It is awesome. Mm. It has a sharper design. It looks way more menacing. And most likely, the coolest part is that it's just this, the visual is an externalization of Ayana's perception of the creature because we see that flashback and it's got this new design. And I think that's a purposeful choice is that this is, this is Gamera from Ayana's perspective. He's terrifying way more so than the previous two films. And I like that. And obviously, like you said, Iris is really an awesome design. Now I do have a few questions and qualms with the film i can't just praise everything about it because i do have a couple problems okay first why do we have a sex scene between iris and a minor (laughs) (laughs) now i know it's not completely explicit it's more symbolic than anything Mm -hmm. but the (laughs) and (laughs) but it starts with ayana saying something to the effect of i'm hot and then unbuttoning her shirt just one button, not anything more than that, and then being covered in tentacles. Mm-hmm. Now, I do like how this contrasts with a later scene, and in that instead of joining together with Iris when Iris is fully grown, he essentially devours her instead of this like union. It's, it's more yeah. of a feast that he has. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me kind of how sex is used in... Uh, I don't know if our viewers have seen this or if you have. I think you probably have, Eric. I, I moved the movie A History of Violence. I have. Yeah, it's I an have. excellent movie that uses sex to illustrate two different points in the character's life and mm-hmm. is almost two different personalities. My other qualm is that these two characters we've mentioned, uh, Mito Asakura and Shinya Karada, they feel almost completely unnecessary to the point to where you could probably roll them up into one character or just get rid of them entirely, and the film wouldn't lose much. Mm-hmm. Uh, they really I, are extraneous. And for me, they, they drag the film down quite a bit, especially in pacing. Well, I think, honestly, like, and just this is just, again, first time watching this film. I mentioned the mythology. Like, it, it lost me a couple times. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, like, who they were and their relationship to the other characters in this film lost me a couple times. Like I, I wasn't, it was an hour into the film and I was like, I'm not quite sure who these people are, or what their motivations are, which is okay. Um, but yeah, it does feel a little bit um, like they could be rolled into one. I do think they add a little bit of commentary and they add some contrast to this hopefulness um, that our other characters have. So I do think there's a role for them here and I'm not saying throw them out completely, but they, they, they could have used a little bit of reworking now quick shout out i wanted to give to a tiny score which i just think is excellent here at times it's so subtle 
at times it's dramatic, but it always heightens that sense of awe that the movie brought out. Um, and I do think like the, the human characters and the ending are all excellent. Our returning characters are complex and they come full circle, mm-hmm. you know, particularly Osako. Um, but Ayana, she's the, she's the main newcomer. I really think she steals the, the show finding a way with just a very few words to make a really big impact. Mm. Um, she, she's an interesting character, kind of a villain, kind of a hero, kind of in between. Um, but she's, she's sympathetic 100%. Mm. And I think she's a really great addition to this cast. Yeah, she is. And I really like how they, like you were talking about, built the mythology in this, uh, especially mm-hmm. with the little sword, <laughs> actually. Yeah. That the protector, I forgot his name, but he's the protector of the shrine. And I like how, and I didn't realize it till it happened, that she became almost mindless like Asagi had in the first movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, once she had acquired the the stone that she wore around her neck, I didn't realize that she had become so mindless because she was quiet to begin with. Yeah. So it was a smaller change for her compared to Asagi. And I like that when that sword just barely cuts her, it severs that connection between the two, between her and Iris. And we immediately see the old Asagi who we saw disappear, but we didn't really quite realize it. I just, I I really like that little bit of mythology because the sword looks goofy and Mm -hmm. for, for him to actually have an impact in this movie was kind of nice because he feels almost like an inconsequential character who keeps, he feels like he should be dying in every other scene. Right. Right. I think his name is, but yeah, he, he does almost feel inconsequential. But he's also necessary, I guess. Yes. Um, and to, to be clear, it's not that I, I don't dislike the mythology. I just think as like someone who hasn't seen this movie before, I haven't watched it multiple times. Mm. Maybe I'm revealing something about myself here. But the mythology, it didn't add as much to my initial viewing as I think it would for subsequent viewings. In yeah. subsequent it, viewings, I think I could really enjoy the mythology and really kind of get into and like geek out about you know, who Gamera is and where Gamera comes from. But for an initial viewing, I'm like, what's Gamera doing and where's Gamera going? Yeah. And real quick, I think you briefly mentioned, but what is your opinion of the ending? Not whether it's good or bad, but do you think Gamera wins or not? Uh, Yes. (laughs) But I I, I think (laughs) ultimately, like, I don't know. I, I I don't like answering that question honestly because it's Ooh. like that's kind of what the, the that's what it wants us to link. That's what it wants to have us lingering about, right? Is is do you believe in Gamera, <laughs> right? Um, and so I, I really like. Do you have faith? Do you have trust in Gamera? And I really like just stopping right there and and accepting that that complex hopefulness in the face of despair, I guess. <laughs> Did you know the director has given a definitive answer? <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I did it. I did it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What's I the won't... director say? He loses? Nope. He wins. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that's fine. That's fine. But the, the film itself, and I'm cool it, with that. I think it leaves just, that question like in how the air. And I'll, that, and he, he did say that he wanted it to be someone's maybe perspective on faith almost. I like that. Um, so we're about to have Steve Rifle on, and Steve Rifle at the end of the Gamera Three commentary, I was rewatching a part of it, 
he said that ending um, when Otani was writing the score for that ending, he talked about how uh, it was so hard to write music for it because of that complex tone. But he said, think about Kaneko told Otani, think about Terminator and the end of Terminator <laughs> where there's kind of a hopeful despair about it where you're not quite sure how to feel. And I thought that was a good comparison. It was really interesting. That is an interesting comparison. If, o- if only started. it went dun, 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 dun. Well, it dun, does dun, dun, pretty much. Dun, it does. Dun, dun, dun. Whenever the uh, it, it has the final like closing, it says Gamera 1999, absolute guardian of the universe. Yeah. Then the percussion picks in, picks yes. up and, and goes in into I, it. It's like really hard percussion. So Another, it actually does have that, Alex. Interesting. <laughs> now, uh, one of the reasons I do think he also wins is because of the way that title comes up. Right. Gamera, yeah. the absolute guardian of the universe. So it's like, yeah. oh. Okay. No, super cool. And super plus, epic at we, the end. We know that he just pulls a move out of his butt in the last two movies. So we know he's just going to do it again for this third one. <laughs> I mean, he does it. He does do it again in this third one, Kind Alex. of. When, kind of. When he, he does... But again, you have to expect that now, right? Well, no, like, no, this one, I, I would argue this one isn't quite like that because we know he can absorb fire. So I was able to buy that he made a fire hand. <laughs> <laughs> I actually okay. had no problem with the fire hand. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. Fair enough, Alex. But before we get Steve on, uh, real quickly, if you aren't tired of hearing of uh, hearing us after this this epic long podcast you can check us out over at patreon.com slash mvm pod and today's mvm plus which you can listen to for our very lowest tier you can listen to it today we're talking about the first five episodes of the return of ultraman we're going to talk about our favorite aspects of this behemoth of a Gamera box set. And we're also going to talk about our reactions to the recent Batman trailer and maybe a little bit more as Mm. well. If you want to join us, join us over at patreon.com slash MVM pod. But without further ado, let's welcome Steve onto the show. Okay. So we were just talking, uh, Steve, and you said you were an expert at Gamera Super Monster. Is that correct? That's what we're here to talk about today? Yeah, that I spent <laughs> about, well, I think I've been researching that film for about 30 years. And uh, sadly, I've learned almost nothing because there's just <laughs> almost nothing to be learned about it. Uh, I'll, I'll keep no. trying. Yeah. Some, no, some... I'm just kidding. <laughs> we are here to talk about Gamera 3, of course. And we often talk about, Alex and I, we often talk about how we're far from experts. And that couldn't be more truthful in comparison to you, our, our guest today, uh, Steve Rifle, um, sometimes known by me and Alex as Style Rifle, author, <laughs> journalist, there scholar, and film producer. Steve has written for publications such as the LA Times, Criterion, Bright Lights Film Journal, and more. He's the co-author of Ishiro Honda, A Life in Film from Godzilla to Kurosawa, Japan's Favorite Monstar, the unauthorized biography of The Big G, and the forthcoming Godzilla vs. the World, The Politics of Japan's Disaster Monster. He's recorded various audio commentaries, including the commentary on the arrow set for this week's film, Gamera 3, Revenge of Eris. So welcome to the podcast, Steve. Did we miss any highlights? Uh, no, that's a pretty good overview. Uh, you know, it's, uh, 
it's weird to hear, you know, those kind of things read back to me. And I, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> just you just it sort of dawns on you how much time you spent uh, watching these movies and thinking about them. But uh, you know, it's super fun and it's a privilege to be able to do that. So thanks for having me on. No problem. No yeah. problem. Are we forcing you to do a uh, complete reevaluation of your life now, Steve? I hope that's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my life. <laughs> we're, we're, we're right in there with you right now. Yeah. So. <laughs> there are there are, there are worse things to do with your time, and uh, yeah. and you know the, the the interesting thing for me, you know, I didn't I, I watch these films like everybody as a kid. You know, that's how you get introduced to them, and I was into all kinds of horror and science fiction movies, um, but. And it's not like I kept watching them for the, you know, the entirety of my life. I took some time away. You know, I, I for it's things have changed. I mean, that's the thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, these kinds of movies used to be pretty hard to come by, especially when uh, they were pretty much only available through television broadcasts. Then when home video started, it was pretty sporadic. I mean, now you know this world that we live in now, where you can just you know go to your TV and stream whatever movie you want pretty much uh, is pretty different from the world I grew up in. And it wasn't really that many years ago. It's just things rapidly changed. And um, so the movies looked crappier when I was growing up, but I didn't know. Nobody knew any any different. That's just the way they yeah. looked. Mm -hmm. They looked, the, these Gamera movies are a perfect example because this set looks gorgeous. These are movies that you know, I, it took years for to even get close to this kind of quality of the image. When I, I remember watching uh, Gamera the Invincible on a little like a uh, twelve-inch black and white set, and the movie's dark and dim anyway, and it looked yeah. like absolute, <laughs> absolute garbage. And it's funny because I was thinking about that movie recently, and I, it's strange. Like this buried memory came back to me. I somehow remembered all, uh, something that I had. I had almost burned down my mother's business when I was watching Gamera the Invincible, probably in like, you know, at age five or six, because um, I so, so my mother had a printing shop and in the back of the shop, this is before Kinko's and all that stuff. She had uh, an offset printing business. And in the back of the shop, there was a TV that I would, you know, sit and watch while I was waiting for her to finish work. And one day I discovered how to flick a butane lighter and light the flame, you know, like you do when you're a little kid for the first time and you just sit there flicking it and the yeah. flames coming out. And um, I was sitting there doing this kind of unconsciously while I was watching camera and they're next Hopefully to me trying to eat the flame or anything. I was, like I was, so. no, no, I was, um, <laughs> I was sitting next to basically a pile of old rags uh, because my mother had these old, these printing presses that were all oily and she would have these rags that she clean everything with. And I didn't realize, but I had lit one of the rags on fire <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I guess it was smoldering for a while. And then we got up to leave and my mother would always go back and do like a check, like a, a once over on the place to make sure she wasn't forgetting anything or whatever. And she went back there and these this pile of rags was on fire. 
oh. and she says, "What were you doing back there?" But if you know, if we had left, <laughs> that whole building would have gone up in flames, and it would have been Gamera's fault. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was Gamera. Yeah, yeah. So, speaking of Gamera, you know, recently in the community, especially, we've really been seeing a lot of love for Gamera. Uh, do you think that the Gamera series as a whole? deserves a reevaluation because I feel like it wasn't that long ago that everyone was really down on these movies, except for the Heisei era. Yeah. Well, I mean, this, all this love you're talking about, isn't that all tied to the release of this set? I don't, I'm not aware if there was like some massive, uh, uh, outpouring of love for, or renewed outpouring of love for Gamera prior to that. But this set is a major event. I mean, it really is. I mean, Arrow does great work, as you probably know. I mean, that their their mm-hmm. product is first rate, and the treatment of these films is really outstanding, both in the terms of the way the the films themselves look and the packaging. And I mean, this deluxe set, which I guess is sold out, yep. is a really amazing set, and there's um, incredible artwork that goes with it. Uh, and you mentioned there are commentaries on every film. They spent a lot of money and time to put this together. And so it, I mean, every, every it seems like every classic films or, or film series eventually, uh, especially if it has a cult following of some kind, eventually will will have a, a reevaluation. And whether it deserves it or not, you know, (laughs) but, um, but these films, you know, certainly the Gamera has always kind of existed in the shadow of Godzilla because it, in a certain respect, it's a, it's an imitation. It's a, uh, to a certain extent, a knockoff, you know, without Godzilla, you'll, you'll never have, you would never have Gamera, but, Mm -hmm. but being that, that being, being that as, as it may, I mean, it has its own, uh, smaller fan base, cult fan base. And these films, like I said, I grew up watching them. They looked like garbage. Then they eventually, and then the first uh, iteration on home video that was widely available was the the Sandy Frank uh, versions, which which were very problematic because, uh, A, they were pan and scan, as I remember, but also they had those weird dubs that were terrible. And that's always always a controversial thing. And... um, so, you know, th- this is kind of what happens, you know, the, the films gradually, uh, you know, through numerous releases and re-releases and different iterations and remasterings and different treatments, you eventually get to a place where you might be able to have something like this camera set. But it's taken how many, what, 30 years or something since they yeah. first came out on home video. I mean, it's just the market sort of. If the market is there, even if it's a small market, it will eventually create the the need and the place, uh, and the and and it requires people to to make it happen too. It's not just that the you know the fans want it, but the people at Arrow have to have the knowledge and the uh, the skill and the and the care and be willing to spend the money to make something like this happen. Mm-hmm. And and then the fan base rewarded them. I mean, this thing sold out. My understanding is. That the deluxe edition that they um, that they pressed eight thousand copies. Don't quote me on that, but that's that's my understanding. And so they wow. sold eight eight thousand copies, and it wasn't enough of this. How, what was the retail price on this thing? It was like, uh, like one twenty five was what yeah. it was going for. Wow, that's a bargain though. But yeah, it's still, I you think know. MSRP was like one eighty, but they were all yeah. marked down pretty pretty steeply. Uh, yeah, for but pre-orders. that's. That, 
But I mean, I think you'd agree that's still a bargain for what you're getting. Oh, I mean, and yeah, it's, for sure. Yeah, it, it's a and, lot of bang for your buck, especially with all the comic books included and all that stuff. It's it's awesome. Yeah. So it's really great. And um, you know, I worked on this one to in a smaller capacity, but and I also worked on the the Criterion uh, Godzilla set that came out last year, which I also you know like very much. But you probably know by now that the Criterion kind of had their hands tied to a certain extent, mm-hmm. and so they weren't. I mean, I think the packaging and everything is and the treatment is respectful and all that, but it, there are certain things that they weren't able to do. And, uh, and, you know, due to legal or contractual restrictions that were placed upon them. And um, this is kind of an, an example of what can happen when the, the rights holder is cooperative and willing to go the extra mile. And the licensee is, you know, a company that shows the love for the, pro- for the, the content and is willing to put in all the, the effort. I mean, it doesn't happen that often so and who would have thought it would happen to gamera you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, like you said i mean i mean gamera you're you're right it's like this sort of it's been uh you know crapped upon in in pop culture for i mean it's there's a but there's a reason why these movies the original ones became uh popular on mst3k because they kind of lend themselves to that sort of treatment you know mm-hmm. it, yeah, yeah let's 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 talk about that a little bit um i know today we're talking about gamma 3 which is probably the most talked about heisei film of the gamma series but what about these showa era films do you think they deserve the flag that they often receive yeah i think they do to a certain extent i mean uh i you know if, i don't think they're all created equal my two favorites if i have to pick favorites among the Showa films would be uh, the second and third film, yeah. uh, Baragon and uh, Gauss. Yes. Uh, I think, you know, unfortunately, I mean, I've always kind of felt this way, that the first Gamera film is uh, kind of boring. It, it doesn't yes. really doesn't really move. And also, I mean, maybe this is sort of a, a carryover from my childhood uh, memory of watching the film, but it was always very dark and hard to see what was going on. And um, I I just found it always as a kid unpleasant, but you watched it anyway because it was a Japanese monster movie and you had (laughs) far fewer choices back then. But I think the, you know, so what I was going to say is as I've gotten a little older, you know, I don't watch these movies necessarily for the same reasons that I did as a kid when I was, Little as most kids do, you watch the, them for the violence and for the the cool monsters and and all that sort of thing. And they certainly have like really interesting um, enemy monsters, and they have mm-hmm. um, and the fights are really bloody and violent yeah. and all that. Um, but now that I'm older, I look for other things in them, particularly like some of the things I'm writing about now have to do with actually looking at these mo- movies and reading, uh, you know, Japanese post-war history through them, which is kind of interesting because mm. nobody ever really, you know, thinks of, you know, I think more people do now, but historically people have kind of dismissed these films and not really seen any kind of, um, uh, you know, import or subtext in them. But actually, if you look col- closer, you can see a lot of things going on in, in the background or even the foreground that have to do with uh the re- relationship between japan and the united states or japan and the world you know and they kind of reflect this really amazing transformation that japan had to go through after the war and uh is still going on now obviously but um 
but uh, Gamera versus Baragon has that interesting story. Uh, you know, the first two or the second and third films, Baragon and Gauss, are basically about greed, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you have these this, these greedy guys who go to the island to try to retrieve this. I think it's an opal, but it turns out to be Baragon's yeah. egg. And these are really, you know, horrible people. I mean, the one guy ends up killing the other guys, and uh, mm-hmm. and there's this whole subtext about uh, you know greed, you know, and uh, getting your just desserts and all of that sort of thing. Plus, Baragon is a really interesting, cool monster with this uh, great ability to freeze Gamera, and it has the the rainbow ray that they end up turning mm-hmm. back upon him. And you know, I just think <laughs> that the, the imagination of you know creating a monster like that is really cool. And uh, yeah. the fight, the fight that's kind of uh, that takes place at night with the snow and the ice and all that stuff is really imaginative. I thought, I think that's that's a really you know. You can see, obviously, and even as a child, you could see the limitations that they were working under. The, the special effects in these films don't have the same kind of polish to them that the Subaraya stuff had. Um, right. But if, nevertheless, I think they, they still kind of are watchable because of all the, the imaginative thinking that goes on into the, the design and the, the uh, abilities of these monsters. And Gaios, Gauss, Gaios is a really cool monster based on, you know, the idea of a giant uh, vampire bat. And um, mm-hmm. I love I love the fact that the new films, the, the Kaneko films, kind of, uh, you know, uh, pay tribute to these older films with the, uh, you know, the, the baseball stadium in the original Gaios film and the way mm-hmm. they kind of recreate it or, or use that as inspiration for the the trapping or the attempt to trap the Gaios in the, in Gamera regarding the universe. I think that's a really nice touch. And there's like a number of other little homages to the old films and in, in Kaneko's movies, but mm. they're very different yeah. of course. Yeah. But you know, if the, starting with Gaios, they have the, um, it has the, the acknowledgement, the deep acknowledgement of the, the child audience. There's the, um, the kid in you know in that film comes up with the answer to everybody's problem and mm-hmm. he's smarter than every you know the 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 the, yes. the, the Uwasif movies are basically about the um you know the innocence and the the purity of of the of the child and uh, and the wisdom of the child uh, that isn't corrupted by greed and all these other you know things that um that take over uh us as adults so Anyway, that those two films I think are really good. I actually was really partial growing up to the next one, the Gamera versus Virus or Virus, however you mm. pronounce it, mm-hmm. uh, because it's sort of like this highlight reel of the previous movies. So you don't have to watch those. But yeah. uh, but, but the stock footage didn't bother me as a child because it was a bunch of monster footage. And then mm-hmm. I also thought that the the Squid Monster was really really cool and uh yeah. and the way that it you know decapitates those uh oh. you know, it, it's uh, alien henchmen and then grows mm-hmm. lord I, I mean i i actually was legitimately i was probably what 10 or 8 years old when i saw that i was legitimately uh kind of horrified by it and i think that monster out of all of them was probably to <laughs> me at that time the scariest one yeah <laughs> but i i i mean these days i Anything after that? I mean, Gear On is kind of fun, I guess, but I, I really have no compunction to watch that uh, at this point. And I hmm. think the the last two, uh, Jiger and Zegra, are pretty unwatchable. Um, yeah. So you're saying Super Monster is your favorite? 
Well, that one, <laughs> honestly, I honestly, I think that's one is a hoot. I mean, it's yeah. uh yes, it's, we do too. Actually. It's a hoot. <laughs> and, and it was obviously made for about $5. And, uh, <laughs> just kidding. It's the though. dollar store camera <laughs> yeah, film. It's fine. Well, I mean, they, they, they were making it as, you know, the company was kind of, you know, emerging from bankruptcy and they uh, clearly looked around to see what they had available um, Richard, in his commentary, talks about the parallels or similarities or, and dissimilarities between that film and Godzilla's Revenge. And I think that's really interesting because uh, Godzilla's Revenge also, you know, is comp- uh, made up largely of stock footage that's pieced together to tell this story. But the Gamera film is, it's really interesting because in Ichiro's story, it's like a meta kaiju movie right because mm-hmm. in, in the Ichiro story uh, the monsters aren't real they're monsters from film and television and that's how Ichiro uh, experienced them and that's why when he has a dream he dreams of stock footage of the movies that he's seen I mean that's the way I interpret it right and and that makes total sense in the it, it doesn't take place in the Toho monster verse it takes place in another in the real world right yeah and so when he talks about Minya and stuff everybody thinks he's nuts Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or they think it's the you know the, the the ramblings of a child who's obsessed with this stuff. In the uh, super monster, it's weird because it kind of plays it both ways, where yes. you get this impression that this stuff is really happening, and yet then when he talks to his mother, she doesn't even know that like half of Tokyo was destroyed last. It night. doesn't make the paper <laughs> either, you know. Yeah. Like it, like it, it you didn't watch the, the news. Paper. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's, that's interesting <laughs> that you say that, Steve, because. You know, in our review a couple of weeks ago, we haven't listened to that commentary yet, but we were saying something very, very similar. Um, so there's there's definitely some similarities between Godzilla's Revenge, All Monsters Attack, and Super Monster. It's an interesting comparison, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. you know, the movie has a lot of uh, charm as well. I mean, the uh, yeah. the space women are just, the whole thing is just, you know. They're great. They're awesome. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, they made they made do with what they had they and what they had was this uh this actress who was very athletic she was a wrestler and the fight scenes between the um the 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 space women are really cool and you know they're very low budget it looks like they shot it probably you know that without a permit or any whatever you know (laughs) requirements they might have had they it looks like they went down to the park and shot it there but it's (laughs) yeah it's fun though you know and uh, it is and the movie makes really no sense, but uh, it's charming, and um, you know, you can again, you can watch that, and you don't have to watch any of the other ones if you don't want to. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, so, and I'm glad Steve is on our side. Yes, me yeah, too. It's glad to. It's glad to have a. Uh... I mean, <laughs> objectively, it's a terrible movie, and but uh, that doesn't mean that it's not entertaining. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Oh, it's it's good to have an ally, Steve. Ha! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to, together, we can convince the world that. <laughs> Super Monster is the best camera movie ever. Um, <laughs> um, but, Steve, I, I know your expertise extend beyond camera into giant monsters in general. And I just wanted to know if you see any influence from camera in, in even the Godzilla films or even just giant monster movies. Yeah. Uh, 
I don't know. Uh, you know, it's hard to, I've never heard a Hollywood filmmaker. I've heard many Hollywood filmmakers talk about how Godzilla, you know, the Honda films, Honda Super I films influenced them, or even the, the later ones from the nineties and beyond. But I don't know if I've ever heard a, uh, I bet Tim Burton might have something to say about it, but uh, <laughs> but I, I really haven't heard of a, a Hollywood filmmaker who would cite the Gamera films as a primary uh, inspiration. Mm. Although that that doesn't mean there isn't one. Um, right. But I think the 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 Kaneko films are are I, I think their influence is pretty obvious, and I we talked about this on the commentary. But I think there are so many similarities between. Uh, especially Gamera 3, uh, between Gamera 3 and the legendary Godzilla films, particularly the first one, but even some parts of the second one, that I, I really Ooh. find it hard to believe that there isn't at least some kind of subliminal or unconscious mm. crib, cribbing from those films. I mean, if you, yeah. I don't, uh, if you look at just even the structure of Gamera 3 and the 2014 Godzilla film, they, they both start with a Japanese scientist going to investigate a disaster in the Philippines that kind of portends the appearance of giant monsters in the world. Then there's a flashback sequence with a, with where the main character of the film, who hasn't been re, uh, introduced yet, a flashback sequence where an accident involving giant monsters that that main character um, loses a parent, or in, mm. in, her, in Ayana's case, both parents, right? Then both films flash forward or fast forward to that same main character several years later. And uh, both the twenty well, uh, Godzilla in the legendary films is more patterned after Gamera in the Kaneko films than it's patterned after, um, you know, the old Godzilla movies. Gamera or Godzilla in the legendary universe is a mythical creature, right? That's tied to an ancient civilization, and its purpose is to defend the Earth from other monsters that are appearing here as the result of prophecy. So it's, um, it's crazy. It, it, you know, it's, it's, I think they, you know, may, may or may not have been conscious of what they were doing, but there was, there's clearly some influence there, whether they would uh, admit to that or not. And, you know, oh. you're supposed to steal from the good stuff, right? So exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about some of that good stuff. Um, what do you think is the most impressive aspect of Kaneko's trilogy as a whole? Or maybe to put it another way, why is this still considered one of the best pieces of kaiju cinema after over 20 years? Well, I think the three movies, especially the first and the last one, those are, you know, I'm, I'm biased towards those, but I enjoy all three. I think the, I think the main thing that he had really going for him was a partnership with a really good writer who had a, a keen sense of how to build one of these films that the Kaneko films are interesting to me for a lot of reasons. But one of the things that I like about them so much is that they are there. There's a real uh, respect for the tradition of this genre. And yet there are also, there's also an open-mindedness and an experimentation or experimentative uh, attitude, especially with regard to the effects techniques. But even there, they're using traditional methods and they're sort of updating them and sort of, sort of, um, uh, mixing them with newer techniques and things that were available at the time, you know, in the 1990s. Uh, when I say a traditional approach, the old Honda films, basically the first decade of this genre, from a, roughly from 1954 to 64, 
those Honda films, and I'm talking about the first Godzilla, uh, Rodan, uh, even the Mysterians, uh, Godzilla versus the thing, uh, Mothra versus Godzilla, and the original Mothra, maybe others, but those are the ones that come to mind. They all kind of follow this recognizable pattern where the movie starts with some sort of a maybe an accident or a natural disaster of some kind and it it uh the the story begins as a sort of a mystery and Mm -hmm. the you know and the there's an investigation into that mystery either by uh you know people of science or journalists or a combination thereof and and then usually you know out of that mystery comes the appearance of monsters or the appearance of an egg on the beach or you know the appearance of the mysterians or you know um the the cave where shigeru finds the baby rodan and the and the big meganula meganula yeah. And so, yeah so i mean it goes back to the first godzilla where it begins with this shipping disaster and everybody's investigating uh, you know the 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 disasters and the disappearance of the the ships, and it all focuses around Oto Island, and that's where the monster first appears. And Kaneko's film uh, films are quite like that. Though the especially the you know the Gamera Guard of the Universe starts with this ship carrying radioactive material, and it bumps into this atoll, and the atoll swims away. What was that? And then there's the the movie begins as an investigation into that accident, and then these other things start to appear, and the mystery, uh, the prophecy starts to unfold. and And I just really like the fact that they kind of went back to the the roots of the genre, but yet he has a really strong. Kaneko is not a monster movie director. He's a filmmaker with a capital F. I mean, he's made a lot of different (laughs) kinds of movies and he has one of the benefits that I think, you know, having him make this kind of film as opposed to some of the other people that have done it in the, you know, around that same time period is that, um, you know, he really has an affinity for working with actors and for casting really good actors mm-hmm. and, and not necessarily like you know, big names all the time. He has a really strong ability to find young performers that maybe maybe don't have the same level of professional experience, but they're really well suited to the role. And then Gamera 3 is a perfect example of that. The Aimaeda who plays uh, uh, Ayana is just, it's an amazing, I think, performance for this type of film. And, um, and so, so Kaneko's films, you know, I think really are just a combination of the right person. And, and, you know, of course he's a lifelong fan of these films, but he's not just trying to go through the motions of it. He's really trying to find uh, a dramatic story. And so, and that, and out of that, you need to have strong characters. And the other thing that's interesting about him, and I think this is also similar to Honda in a certain way, although Kaneko goes fa- uh, farther with it, is that Kaneko is really it seems to be interested in having in these films and in all of his films or many of his films uh, strong female protagonists. And you don't yeah. norm- normally associate a female lead with a monster movie, although I think it's more common now than it maybe was at one time. But yeah. you know, in and he puts these women in these these female characters in positions of, you know, they're the lead, they're the protagonist. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I made a comment too about uh, Shinobu Nakayama who plays um, Nagamine. 
in the first film, she's young. She's supposed to be this, you know, young uh, scientist. And all the, the the men who are in charge and positions of authority, they, the one guy with the, the character with the glasses basically tells her, well, you're only here because, you know, we can't find anybody else. You're the only one who knows anything about this. But you're young and you're, you know, you're female, he says in so many words. So, you know, you, you know you're, you're on a short leash. And by the, the third film... She's in charge of the the operation. She has the power. Yeah, yeah. she and they all respect her now. They do. Yeah, and, and I I like and, and I just find that that you know he's he's showing like a the struggle of you know the the woman in the Japanese uh, uh, you know work environment. Um, Absolutely. And uh, and I think that's really you know kind of a progressive attitude to, to see in one of these films. Yeah. So there's a, there's just a lot of things to think about it. And then of course the effects in these films by Higuchi are really good and and um they were much better i think or at least you know it's when you compare a lot of people like to compare them to the heisei godzilla films and a lot of a lot of people who are boosters of the the gamera films will kind of jump to the idea that the effects in the gamera films are better and i agree with that but but what does that mean and i think to me what it means it's not just like the, that the CG is more realistic or something like that. I mean, for God's sakes, it's a flying turtle, yeah. right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's going to be, that's the all. And the, the, I think the try of these films is overall is that they took this idea of a giant flying turtle that spits fireballs and spins around when it flies, and they made it like acceptable and by the third film i mean the the flying sequences with gamma look amazing right but um but but uh the the effects by higuchi i think one of the reasons he was so uh such a breath of fresh air when he came along is he wasn't trying to just do the same old thing in the same old way he kind of even though he's using the same techniques he kind of redesigned the way these films look to a certain extent, right? And, and I think, and in Gamera 3, again, it's like there are shots in that film that look like works of art, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the the guy, the uh, Iris uh, flying through the clouds and you see it's, you know, the the, the, the flowing, you know, wings of it and, and everything. It's just, it's so graceful and beautiful. And, you know, one shot that everybody points out, is, which is so beautiful in that moment of silence before, the big battle at the end begins where Gamera and Iris are facing off and there's a sort of, you know, artistic rendering of the flames in, you know, silhouetted yeah. behind them. And then, um, and then of course it, there's this parallel drawn between Iris and Ayana. And, and I think that's just really kind of uh, dramatic and moving. And, and, and that's a whole thought process that went into that, that is way different than some of the, the things that we'd, you know, been exposed to before in this genre. So I give them just tons of credit for just, I hate to use that stupid phrase, but thinking outside the box, not just doing the same old, same old stuff, but actually mm -hmm. stopping and thinking about what you're doing. And again, um, you know, we point out in the, the commentary for the third film for Gamma 3, that they one of the things that they had the luxury of in making Gamera Three was an extended uh, pre-production period, um, yeah. so that allowed I thought that them. Was interesting, yeah, yeah. Because so, I, I did listen to part of that, and I really liked your your thought behind. Yes, they had less money, but they had more time, and with more yeah. time, you're you're able to make a better film. You just are, and that's yeah. what Gamera uh -huh. Three had was more time. 
Well, when you're writing, especially, and I'm yeah. sure, you know, it, it, it probably goes the same for the effects work too. But if you, as you're writing a script, the more time you have, or writing anything really, the more iterations you can go through, the more you can weed out the mistakes and inconsistencies yeah. and you can build up the things that you, you want to build up. A lot of time, you know, as you know, films are made on, on, uh, you know, a, a timeline and sometimes, it's funny in Hollywood, they usually have a long time leading up to production. So the, the script will go through often on these big films, a lot of different writers and different drafts, but they're still rewriting it as they're shooting it. They're changing dialogue and they're changing scenes. It's really common. And so, so I'm sure, you know, the added time in this case really contributed to the tightness of the script. It's not perfect. There are little things in it that, uh, you know, I think they could have cleaned up or done slightly better. But overall, it's a really strong script. Let's let's get into then some of the specifics of Gamera 3, Revenge of Eris. Um, and we're going to start with the coolest character award. And we've, we've already talked about some of these. Um, so, Alex, let's go ahead and start with you. Who do you have for your coolest character award? I had to, I had to pick the one character. Well, not the one character, but the character that's appeared at least briefly in all the movies. Okay. Uh, former Inspector Asako. Yeah, I guess it is. And I just really like that he has some redemption after the previous movie and the opening of this film. Uh, it, was, mm-hmm. it, was, it was good to see him have that moment where he gets to, I guess, be his former self again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, re- I really like that he has a kind of a full circle arc where he just kind of ends up back with back where he started, but maybe not quite as much of a coward. Yeah. <laughs> well, my choice is Asagi, and I've liked Asagi in, in the past two films. But here, what I like about her is she's has her connection, her like metaphysical connection from Gamera basically taken away. It's faded at this point, mm-hmm. and yet she still has a personal connection, which just goes to show that it wasn't just this like spiritual connection they had. Like there was an actual mm-hmm. connection that she felt with Gamera. Um, and I really liked that she was there for it, you know, despite not having that connection, she was there for it and she was going to do anything in her power to still help Gamera. So I had to go with Asagi this time around. Um, Steve, who did you have? Well, I, I, I just want to say, I, I really like Asagi in this movie as well. And I think the actress, uh, Ayako Fujitani, it, it's nice to see her like maturing, not just getting older, but she's matured as an actress by this point. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the performance in the first film is fine, but it's, she's a kid and she's playing yeah. a kid and it's really, I mean, it's, it's fine, but it's not like something I would, uh, if I were crit- critiquing the film, say that her performance was, you know, especially good or bad. But in this film, even though her part is smaller, it's a, it's an important part because as we talk about in the commentary, I think she's there because she's the one person who can kind of read Gamera's feelings. And mm-hmm. the one the one scene that there's that great scene at the end of the movie, and I think it's so touching because for a number of reasons, there's when when Gamera revives uh, Ayana, and Ayana kind of has this you know final realization of everything that's happened and and you know what it means, and she, you know she's hit with this wave of grief. But but the, there's that moment when. Nobody can believe that Gamera has revived this girl. Yeah. But when uh, Ayako, uh, 
Fujitani, uh, when Asagi looks up at Gamera, there, there's that little smile. She doesn't say anything, mm -hmm. but she smiles because she <laughs> understands what Gamera is here for and what the relationship is. And I think it's that whole scene there is just so nice and touching, and it's a wonder, yeah. wonderful way to kind of sum up the the what Gamera is and what its relationship with with mankind is. And and Ayako is a really you know I think she does a lot of other things other than acting. She's a filmmaker and a writer, but. She's a really good actress, and now she's probably, geez, close to 40, I would think. Um, but did, I don't know if you've seen, um, well, it's just amazing how much time passes, right? Because um, mm -hmm. Gamera Garden of the Universe is what? Is that 25 years ago now? Yeah. And, um, wow. <laughs> yeah. And uh, did you see, there's a film she's in called Man from Reno, which is fairly accessible. Hmm. Have you seen it? I have not. I have not. Uh, it was I've on, heard of it. Yeah, it was on Amazon Prime. Um, it's made by a filmmaker who named Dave Boyle. I think he, I don't know where he's from originally, but he's from here in LA. He actually lives pretty close to me. And I used to see him around town at screenings, but he's made a few independent films and, um, and he has an, you know, strong affinity for Japanese culture. And, and he made this film man from Reno, which is set in San Francisco, but um, it's a, Ayako is the main character. She plays a Japanese mm. novelist who is kind of burned out on her career. And I think she just had a bad relationship. I can't, I haven't seen it in a couple of years, but <clears throat> She kind of takes off from Japan, like un unannounced. She dutch she ditches out on like her book publicity tour, just gets on a plane and flies to San Francisco and kind of without a reservation or anything, checks into this hotel where I guess a lot of Japanese tourists frequent. And she gets involved with a man that she meets, a Japanese man who's also, I guess, supposedly a tourist of some kind. But... um or maybe he's living in the United States. I can't remember, but this mysterious guy, and it turns into this sort of film noirish murder mystery, huh. and it's really a really nice little independent film, uh, shot up and around in around the um, you know the Bay Area and other communities up there. And Check I, that out. Yeah, I yeah. know yeah, it's really mm -hmm. nice. And and again, it was on Amazon. It was like a Prime film. You didn't. It was like included. Oh, cool. So, but I don't know if it is now. That was about a year ago. Anyway, uh, uh, she's great, and that's a great character. My favorite character, the one I was originally going to pick, uh, is Nagamine, who we talked about, because I think she's just got this grace. The, the actress, um, Shinobu Nakayama, and the character of Nagamine in this film have this great grace under pressure. And, um, you know, even though, you know, she's still, like I said, a female working in a, a male-dominated world, but that's less of an issue because she's since become like the leading authority on Gamera and, and Gauss. And, but I like how she kind of takes charge of the situation. She goes back and finds Osako. She knows that's him when he says that it's not him, but he's, you yeah. know, embarrassed and to have been, you know, reduced to this homeless guy basically. Um, but she goes back and finds him, pulls him out of, you know, his, the rut that he's in. And then when, um, Ayana is basically kidnapped, she goes after her and tries to save her. Um, she's mm -hmm. really the the one the kind of engine that drives this this plot forward. But the other character, if I, you can give me an extra, you know, thirty seconds, I really like the character of Moribe in this film, uh, who's played by an actor named Yu Koyama, who didn't really do, I guess, a lot of film. He's that the story was that they found him, they were shooting down in the Nara area, and I guess they cast him locally. He was some sort of a mm. stage actor from that area, if, if I understand correctly. And he's so good in the part. He's some. He plays the part of a boy 
who grew up in this town where Ayana and her brother, they used to, I guess, summer there or visit their aunt and uncle there sometime. So he rem remembers her from when they were, you know, much younger school kids. And he's always had this crush on her. And now she's back and living there. But she's now kind of unapproachable because she's so emotionally, uh, you know, cut off from the world. And he tries to help her. And she's kind of at first really standoffish. And there's these little moments. That, this is great acting and you know great writing and directing too. You remember uh, in the, in the cave. You know his family is the, are the guardians of this this uh, sacred shrine with the cave in it that has the monsters. Basically, it's egg in there. And um, she goes in there on a dare, and she's carrying this stone out. And there are two thing, two scenes that I think are really wonderful and memorable. The first one is like this teenage awkwardness where he's offering her a handkerchief to to wipe her brow because she's sweating from carrying this thing, and she yeah. she kind of refuses it. And the, his sort of awkward, you know, moment there where he doesn't know what to do with it is just great. And um, and then the other character, the other moment when he's his grandmother is kind of like. Handing down to him, I think it's his grandmother. It might be his great grandmother. She's handing down the responsibility of guarding. He's the man of the of the house, the and he's going to inherit the responsibility of guarding this shrine. And the grandmother's telling him like, "There's a stone in there that nobody can move." And even a sumo wrestler tried to move it, and uh, it can't be moved because it's this you know powerful you know object, and it has all this uh, uh, you know spiritual sacred value. Anyway, um, but he knows that Ayana, you know this grade school girl picked it up with her bare hands and that little like reaction he gives when his grandmother is telling him this can never be moved he's like thinking like <laughs> he's thinking you know holy shit you know she just yeah. moved it the other day and, <laughs> yeah. but it's just this subtle reaction it's, he's a great actor in this part and, yeah and, he really and, is and every time he's around ayana the awkwardness and you know that he it really shows just how much he cares for her and i so yeah. the, the, the young actors in this movie are part of what really makes it great i think Anyway, go I ahead. agree. Yeah. I agree. Well, let's move right into our most memorable line award. And Steve, we'll start with you this time. Yeah, I mean, in the translations, it usually is translated as uh, just two words. It's here. And that's what Ayana says uh, when the uh, characters, Ayana is kind of being uh, shepherded around by the medium and the crazy game designer guy who's kind mm -hmm. of like the prophet of the film, I guess co-prophets. And Nagamine, who's the kind of the voice of reason, and then Ayana, who's the voice of I'm sorry, um, Asagi, who's the voice of Gamera. They're all kind of like the the one thing about the film there that I don't quite understand is why um, uh, Nagamine wouldn't have just taken Ayana away from the the medium and the the crazy guy who clearly kidnapped yeah. her. But yeah. uh, there's all. It seems like there's a line of dialogue maybe missing there where they come to an understanding that they need to work together. But anyway, uh -huh. that's clearly what's going on, and and the, the they're all kind of waiting for the inevitable arrival of Iris and and, and Gamera. And when Iris kind of touches down in the city, and the the talisman sort of lights up, um, she has the line that's just it's here. And I like that. It's a it's a tie back to the first film when. Asagi had the pendant that was tied to Gamera, and when Gamera arrived to fight Gauss, sorry, I'm uh, tongue-tied, she also said the, basically the same line, it's here, and in that movie it represented hope, it represented, you know, the arrival of, you know, uh, the savior, the, the, the thing that's yeah. going to get us out of this situation. Here, that same word, the same couple of words in that same type of situation has a far darker 
uh, ring to it. It really signals yeah. like the possibly the end of the world. Well, mm-hmm. I, I like that connection. That connection back to the first film. Um, that, yeah, that's a good pickup right there. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my line is also kind of a connection back to the first film. And you mentioned this before, Steve. Um, but my line comes from Sato. He's the deputy minister of the environment. He says, the cabinet views Gamera as the enemy. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid that I have to disagree with that. Yeah. And if we remember, of course, Sato um, was the, the the enemy, the human enemy of Gamera in the first of the trilogy. Yeah. Um, so he has come completely full circle right around. Not only does he respect uh, Nagamine, he also respects Gamera right down to the fact that he has that little turtle on his desk. Um, that's That's just a great little detail that I love that they included there. Um, and so I like to see his character arc from the first film to the last fi- film of this trilogy. Yeah. It's weird though. In, in this movie, he ha- he's kind of like, um, at least when they, you know, there's always in Kaneko's films, uh, at least a little bit, I guess, of, of comic relief. Um, yeah. sometimes, sometimes more than others. Uh, and he doesn't overdo it. That, yeah. yeah. I don't, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's campiness so much. Cause that's, that's even more over the, t- you know, you know, like in Godzilla 2000, they had that. that There's another director, obviously, it was Okawara, but they had that silly thing with the almost like uh-huh. a Three Stooges thing with the board that was hitting the guy. Oh, in the right, head. right, the slapstick I, stuff. Yeah, you know, yeah, I don't think you need that stuff. But in Kaneko's film, there's always some. Little, it's usually like a character tick of some kind, and usually it's in these films, it's Osako, who's kind of a, a nervous, uh, you know, kind of anxious and a little bit overexpressive like that. But there's a scene. Uh, early in Gamera 3, uh, or in the kind of t- early middle part of it, where this character you're talking about kind of has that creepy line where he sort of, and, and Nagamine kind of just like gives that look of like, okay, you know, the, it's really almost like he's a, for that brief moment, like an old lecher. He's, he's trying to impress her, but, um, you know, the yeah. guy's clearly like 20 some years older than her. Right. Anyway, but, but it's a great <laughs> character and, and, um, yeah, I like his performance a lot in, in all the films, in both of those films. For sure. Alex, mm-hmm. what did you have for your most memorable line award? Well, you know, you all you all had lines tying yeah. back to the first movie. Mine ties back to the second movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's uh, Asako's line of uh, when he finally has that redemption, where he ha- finally has found his sense of purpose. Uh, yeah. He says, beer hasn't tasted this good in a long time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, actually, that line really made me happy for that character to finally have that purpose again. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Alex, what about your "Can't Believe That" acting award? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Uh, okay, <laughs> you have to rewatch it to find this guy. Okay. This is this is a joke. <laughs> this, this one's a joke one for me, Steve. <laughs> but. The, there is a scene where they're in this war room pretty much trying to figure out where Gamera is going. Uh, and there is a guy on top of the map. He's on both knees with one hand on, on the, on the thing. And he is sitting so still. They should have painted him silver and he could have made some money like out in Shibuya or something like that. Because <laughs> it, it, it's just the weirdest thing. It's like they said, go or action. They said action. And he was just still staying still. Because you see him later on in the background, finally moving uh, <laughs> with the same. It's the same camera shot. It doesn't cut or anything, but it's just the most bizarre little thing. I noticed it, and I couldn't. <laughs> I had to show it to my wife. It was so uh, <laughs> weird. 
I need I need to go rewatch that because yeah. I don't I don't know. I've watched this movie uh, a number of times now, and I don't remember that. I'll, have I'll, to find, I'll find the time. I'll try to find a timestamp, and I'll uh, I'll let y'all know what. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah Steve, who'd you have? Well, it's funny. I didn't pick Toru Tezuka because I I kind of thought maybe one of you guys would pick him, uh, and and that's you know that's fair game. I mean that performance is crazy, but mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a great character. But I just think I just I said this already, but I just think I Maeda's performance is really outstanding for a lot of reasons. But I mean it's hard enough to to find a character in one of these movies that's you know really. Uh, worthy or you know of the actor's talent sometimes you know they're just not it tends to not be a genre that lends itself to great acting performances um right mm-hmm. but this is a character who has suffered tremendous uh trauma and is channeling that trauma into anger that, uh, that will you know change the the course of history right and and she finds a a vessel for it and this character has very few lines of dialogue in the film. I mean, it's one of the it's relative to screen time. She doesn't really speak that much, and right. she doesn't emote that much. She's her emotions are internal or are stunted, you know. And so, think about how hard it is to, or what a challenge it must have been to, to. And, and I don't think that uh, I, it's not a one note character. It's it, it, to me her her performance has a lot of depth because you do see in quiet moments how hurt she is she doesn't mm-hmm. you know that like in the scene it's an important scene but it goes by kind of quickly where the family her new family the, the, that have adopted her and her brother they want her to change her name which is yeah. yes. you know, understandable on their part because if you you know read or you know if you've been to some of these villages but if even you see this in other movies and japanese uh, stories where you know this the 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 community, these small communities are very tight knit and, you know, it's a way of bringing her into the family and not having her exist there or live there as an outsider from, from Tokyo. Right. It's a, it's a way of basically, um, uh, bringing her into the fold and it, it, it would be very important to that family, but she doesn't want to do it of course, because her parents are still, you know, that's one of the only things left tying her to her parents who she lost at a very young age. I mean, she's even older. You know, her brother was probably teeny tiny when they died, so he doesn't remember it much. He probably doesn't even remember them that much. But she's old enough to remember them and to still hurt. And um, so that and the, the moment where she wakes up. From, there's a number of scenes where you can see that hurt. And then yeah. to see the 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 her to go through the the you know and then again like in and other times she's just a little kid when she's nurturing this monster which is a very dangerous thing that she's doing but she's behaving like a little kid who found a lost puppy you know she's yeah. bringing it cans of food and and stuff like that and and she names it after the cat that died in the uh in the uh the gamera tragedy mm-hmm. i just i just think it's a great part you know it's great writing and somehow they found this great actress that does not come across as a child actor with all the, yeah. you know, the, the sort of shortcomings that might come from child actors. Uh, she's just brilliant. And um, so I can't say yeah. enough about it. Anyway, thank you. Yeah, no, I would have I would have chosen her. Uh, I, I thought about it. But ultimately, I had to go with Toru Tezuka, who you mentioned, as Shinya Karada. Um, he's just creepy in his role in certain aspects and he just has certain smiles just a certain expression at times it's it's, it's an expression of disbelief but also of um 
like he he knows something or he thinks he knows something that nobody else knows. Yeah. Uh, so I really liked his his subtle smiles, um, his quirky little mannerisms. It is over the top a little bit. He's another one of those characters that I think is is acting a little bit over the top. But I think Kaneko has those characters in his film, yeah. and that brings a little bit of balance to the serious tone um, that his films seem to have. So I, I, I liked uh, his performance. I do think, for me, like the um, his character and the high priestess character Mito, that is a weaker aspect of the film uh, i just don't know if they're developed as much as some of these other characters but his performance is uh top notch i thought yeah no he's great yeah steve uh what was your standout effect award well it's hard to pick one um there i just think that whole sequence in shibuya when uh gamera and gaios uh, battle in the in the heart of tokyo like on a friday mm-hmm. friday or Saturday night. It's just amazing. And, um, and again, we were talking earlier about, uh, the filmmakers and how they're doing versions of things that you've seen before, but they're thinking, they're rethinking it and not just presenting it in the same old way. One of the, one of the things they thought about when making this film, they they didn't really want to have these big confrontations between like the monsters and the military again. So they staged this fight uh, basically without warning there's really like it happens so fast that the military doesn't have time to respond and so it really is a monster battle in the middle of the city and it, it they happen to land in like the most populated area of tokyo where everybody you know hangs out on uh, at night and goes to dinner and goes out for you know drinks and that kind of stuff and on top of that this sort of there's the, the 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 film spends a lot of, or the the camera spends a lot of time at ground level so mm-hmm. the one of the first things that happens when um you know the big uh, burning body of the the, the gauss uh, falls to the ground and and smashes into the ground and then gamera lands you can see his big feet landing and it kind of smashes down on the the subway station and all these people are trapped inside mm-hmm. so you have like the 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 chaos of that you have the you know people. You have all the kind of usual things that you see where where people are running away and the monsters are kind of uh, uh, composited into the background with you know there's you know a combination of, in the shot is a, a combination of real structures and miniatures and monsters uh, guys in monster suits, but you've never really seen I don't think it framed in this way before and you've never seen you know th- that eye level shot. I, what I thought about was. The year before this happened, or the year before this movie came out, the the, um, the Godzilla '98 film from TriStar came out, mm-hmm. and there's this kind of uh, potentially really good moment in that film, but I think they sort of uh, dropped the ball on it, where uh, the Godzilla walks past the, uh, the the newsroom, and you can see the monster's head through the blinds of you know uh, of of the the office building windows, and you just see Godzilla oh, yeah. kind of walking down the street, right? Well, mm-hmm. A, you can't see it very clearly. I think they were trying to, to fudge on the effects a little bit. So they had, I think, if I remember correctly, the blinds aren't fully open. So you kind of see it through the, 
you know, through the blinds, and it's kind of yeah. the monster's head is kind of obscured. But you can clearly see what it is. But that's all that happens, just walks down the street. In this sequence, you have these people eating in a high-rise. If you've ever been to Tokyo, you, you may have eaten at one of those uh, many restaurants that are kind of in the upper floors of a department store or some other kind of building. And you, you sit there, like last time I was there, we had dinner with, Ed and I had dinner with Norman Anglin and, um, and we were in this really nice uh, sushi place in Ginza, and you look out the big glass windows all around you, and it's, you know, it's full. The city is full of lights and stuff, and it's amazing. There's a lot of places like that, and there's Gamera like walks right up to one of these restaurant or bar windows and turns to fire its plasma ball at Gaios, and it fires it right through the window and through this restaurant. I mean, that's like that takes some creative thinking because you, you know, it's not an angle. That you, it's putting you right. in the in the position of these people who are about to get blasted away, mm-hmm. and there's all through that entire sequence, uh, there's just a, a lot of uh, ideas like that that are you know both uh, familiar and new, and I I, I just really yeah. appreciate yeah. it. So it's hard to like say like one effect in there is, but even like at the very end of the sequence when the whole Shibuya just goes up in flames, uh-huh. I mean it's just that's a, just a kind of a CG shot of you know uh, a massive fire spreading out, but even that is like artistically done, and it's really right. impressive. So it's well, it's great. Yeah, what what I like about what you're saying there is is something that I, I praise about this film, and it's it's the intimate nature of of almost everything. Uh, and so, like, you get those shots that put you in that position that creates that intimate sort of feel like you're right there. Um, and I think that's what my standout effect award does as well. And it's an, an uh, effect from the Kyoto train station mm-hmm. at the end of the film where uh, I think it's a composite shot and you, you see our protagonist standing um, on a platform of some type. And then, and you get the slow motion shot. They kind of move out of the frame and you get the slow motion just crashing through the train station of our oh, two yeah. monsters. Yeah, and it's yeah. just, it's That's an really amazing cool. shot, an amazing effect. And once again, it just, it just shows that scale and the size of these monsters. And it's so well done. Um, it had to be my standout effect award. Yeah, the, that mm. that whole sequence is wonderful, and you think about what the audacity of putting the two monsters inside the big train station structure. Yeah. I mean, that's cre- that's kind of crazy, but it works. They made it work. It did, and it, it looks did. it looks fantastic. And it, have you ever been to that train station? I have not. Yeah, I, have not. I, I was no, there. But... I've been there a couple of times. Uh, last time I was in Japan was eight twenty eighteen, and we took the bullet train from Kyoto to. Uh, to uh, Tokyo from there, and um, and I'd been in there before, but you just stand there in the middle and you look around. You can kind of see like uh, the platform or the, the the level upper level mm-hmm. where where the the protagonist would have been probably standing, and um, yeah, it's a massive place. But again, as Ed points out, it really wouldn't have been big enough for the two monsters to fit inside, so they fudged on the scale and made it larger yeah. in the in the movie. Yeah. Well it is it is a great sequence and a great scene. Uh Alex, what did you have for your standout effect award? You know, they did really really great dead gauss in this movie. But <laughs> uh 
I, I could cite the one from the Shibuya uh, sequence, which I really yeah. like because he's got the eyeball hanging out and it's <laughs> it's really gruesome. I love the way they did that. But really, the one that really kind of stuck out to me afterwards was the first one we see, mm-hmm. the dead one that gets beaten by the grandmother with a with a hoe. Yeah. And I, it looks so great. It does. The way oh, that yeah. thing is crafted. I mean... Overall, the redesign for Gauss in this movie is really excellent. They almost feel like dragons yeah. uh, in this one. And I really like that decision. That, But again, it's that smaller scale one with its skin like rotting. Yeah, uh, that, mm-hmm. I, I really, that one's really kind of stuck with me, that image of that one. Yeah, I can tell sure. you a, a little tiny anecdote that we uh, actually, I think we left it out of the commentary. We didn't have a chance to mention it. But uh, that... Um, Dead Gauss uh, in the Philippines. Which, that whole sequence is actually shot in the Philippines, uh, on on location of a uh, a university there, I guess, or a college. And the, the little huts and things that you see, I guess, were built for the movie. And so the, hmm. when they and the and they had this big um, Gauss prop, and they put it on the ground and they coated it. I guess they doused it with fish juice. To make it all stinky, so that it would attract flies. So all those, uh, oh. I guess nowadays you could just add a bunch of CG flies, but um, uh, those flies are real. And then when they when they were finished shooting, they left the dead Gauss prop and the uh, little huts that they had built there. So oh, that's funny. Like <laughs> and they're that. still there to and this still day, day. Yeah. rotting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Alex, what'd you have for your oh, that's a good shot award? This might be like a standard, not even creative pick, but I really okay. like that final shot of Gamera standing, not the final shot, but the final shot of him in the station where he's standing facing Asagi. Mm-hmm. He's got one missing arm with the, the green blood coming out, and then the other hand is just covered in the red blood. Okay. I really just like that imagery of him just standing over these humans like, like they're nothing, but treating them as they matter. Mm. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of really great images like that, I thought, uh, throughout. Mine was, um, it, this is shot in the flashback sequence um, that you mentioned, Steve, in your Godzilla 2014 comparison. In the, the flashback sequence, we just see the, the shot from within Ayana's apartment uh, mm. where her parents are located. And you just see Godzilla coming toward, or not Godzilla, Gamera right, <laughs> coming yeah. towards uh, that window. And it's not necessarily the most technically brilliant shot of, of the f- film, but mm-hmm. I just like how it represents a different aspect and a different perspective. Um, because we haven't seen that in, in the first two films, but now we get that that perspective that really for the first 45 minutes of this film mm-hmm. gives this film a different tone that I wasn't expecting the first time watching this movie. Mm. Yeah. Steve, what'd you have for your, Oh, that's a good shot award. Uh, well, there's a lot of those to choose from, but I really, uh, like, uh, you know, there's a lot of activity in the rain at the end of the movie. And, mm-hmm. uh, and often like I think in the Godzilla 98 movie and even in the, the uh, the newer ones uh the, and in many other films as well uh rain can be used i think sometimes to masquerade shortcomings in the cg mm-hmm. um but in this case i think 
even if that's what they're doing, and I don't know if that's what they were doing, that last sequence in the rain is just all the more dramatic because of it. And you know, you know, there's the undercurrent in the film about the environment and how the changes to the Earth's mana are kind of reflective or co coinciding with these uh, environmental uh, events. And um, and so there's sort of this, you know, it lends the, this sort of cataclysmic atmosphere to the battle. And I really love the, the moment when Iris descends from the sky and lands in Kyoto with the the Nijo castle in the kind of the foreground because that that fine and the, the you know Iris at that point you know that sometime in sometimes some representations it's a suit but it, in some representations it's a CG and um and the CG is graceful and beautiful and, and it kind of they're able to highlight the colors of the creature through the mm -hmm. CG in ways that uh, you know maybe you couldn't do with a suit it's it's pretty it's just an amazing dramatic uh moment when you finally get a sense of how big this yeah. MF is. <laughs> it, yeah, it's huge. And yeah. it, it feels really like it's straight out of an anime almost. Because yeah. it's like yeah. you said, those vibrant colors, mm -hmm. they're really popping. And this thing, it feels menacing when it lands. Yeah, yeah it's funny because I, I keep wanting to say that this creature is uh, derivative of or inspired by anime designs. And I think there's common threads there but i couldn't really point to like any specific creature in anime and say oh it looks like that right you know yeah uh, i think it's more so the pose almost when he lands because he's got like the legs almost look like they're crossed hmm. when he's landing on the ground like he's got one foot in front of the other which is like a very like a stylish landing almost yeah. reminiscent of something i feel like i would see in an anime I feel like, you know, I, I can remember the first time I saw this film, and uh, thankfully the first time I ever saw it was in a, a movie theater because it played at G-Fest in uh, uh, 1999 in Los Angeles at the beautiful Egyptian theater, a great place to see a, a movie. And um, and I remember that seeing that that moment and thinking, you know, like how is this is what the movie's supposed to do. It's supposed to make you think, how the hell are we going to get out of this? How is Gamera going to beat this thing? It's gigantic. It's way bigger than him. It's more powerful than him, you know, and it and it wants him dead, you know. It's um, it's a great moment. It's a great moment. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that brings us now to the end of our episode, and this is our rating and ranking section. And I don't know how much of a critic you are, Steve, but um, I'd, I'd like to know kind of what where would you what would you give this movie out of five, and if you were to rank it within the Gamera series as a whole. Where would you rank this movie among your favorites? Well, I mean, uh, objectively, sub <laughs> subjectively, uh, I mean, I really think it's the best movie in the entire series and not by, uh, you know, a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I think, you know, if I had, it's really an unfair thing to do to rank the entire series as if it were some one series. It's not. The the Kaneko films have, the only thing that they have in common with the Showa films, they, they do pay some respect to them in certain ways, but it's a total rethinking. The technology is different. The intentions of the filmmakers are different. And so it's, it's impossible really to rank the entire series. But nevertheless, <laughs> it's having said all of that, I do think it's, you know, if I had to rank the, these series in terms of, you know, quality of filmmaking, Mm -hmm. uh, Kaneko's films would be the top three. I would probably put his, 
you know, Gamera three, then Gamera guardian of the universe. And then, uh, Legion after that. Um, I just don't think the other ones, um, really come close, but that's not to say that they don't have their own, uh, entertainment value. Uh, I don't know where I would put uh, Gamera the Brave in there. I haven't really seen it in, you know, actually I'm working my way through the set. I just got my copy of the set about a little over a week ago, and I'm kind of working through the films chronologically. And that'll, that'll be the last one because I want to listen to everybody's commentary and see what people yeah. came up with. That's that's kind of fun to do because I don't really know, you know, a whole lot about the original Gamera series other than what I learned when I I, I was able to interview Noriaki Yuasa once a number of years ago, and then I've listened to and read interviews with him. Um, but um, I'm not like, you know, a super scholar of those films because frankly, there's not as much source material on them, you know? Right. So, yeah. Um, so, well, yes. Yeah, so uh, you would rank this at the top then. I would. And, and if I had, would you, uh, would, you know, would you the, give it a rating out of five or well, stay away from ratings. It's that's again hard. I mean, you know, if you're going to rank it, it just you know, if you're going to critique it as a film, or you're going to critique it as a kaiju film, or critiquing if I'm critiquing it as a kaiju film, I'd give it you know, it, you know, somewhere between a four and a five, you know, maybe a four and a half. Um, there are very few flaws that I can find with it. Uh, I think it's very compelling. And the thing about the Kaneko films is that they're, you know, within this, you know, destruction and spectacle and action. There are human stories. There are people in there that you can care about. And, and you know, the, that's the, the thing I didn't really mention. But the thing with Ayana and that performance and that character, she's essentially the bad guy, right? But she's not the bad guy. She's not the bad you know, You know, and then in this sort of normal, uh, you know, construct she's the villain but she's not she's a child who was damaged and and traumatized and she's only doing the things that she's doing out of uh this misguided notion of revenge um i brought up in the commentary i was trying to think of all the you know the films about uh how war affects children and and you know because that's really what you know if if godzilla and and by extension gamma are metaphors for, for war and for the nuclear bomb, then I think this film is really about the effects of war on children because that's what, that's what she represents. She represents, you know, metaphorically a, a person or a child who lost her parents in war, right? Yeah. And and so I was thinking about other, you know, films that where, where children are deeply affected by war. And there's a couple from Japan that are really, if you, you know, there's the film version of Barefoot Gen, but especially there's the uh, film Grave of the Fireflies, which is just rip your heart out. And if yeah. you, anyone hasn't seen that, you really owe it to yourself. It's a For sure. great filmmaking, but also just really heartbreaking. But there's a film from, from Russia, um, uh, the Tarkovsky film, um, uh, Ivan's Childhood, which mm-hmm. I bring up on the commentary. And you can find this film on the Criterion channel. It's Tarkovsky's first film, and it's about a young boy who's about... Ayana's age and whose ch- whose parents are killed by the Nazis and he goes through a transformation very similar to Ayana where he shuts down emotionally and beca- becomes uh, basically a child soldier with the sole purpose of avenging the death of his parents and uh, I, I really wonder if can if I ever get a chance to ask him I'd like to know if Kaneko saw that film and if it had any bearing on his his thinking that's cool yeah I like yeah. that um so for me, where I put this film, to to be fair to it, it's probably my most anticipated kaiju film ever. 
I just heard so much about this one that it would be impossible for me to go into it with zero expectations and remain objective. Sure. But, you know, despite my high expectations that had the potential to suck the life out of my viewing experience, I thought that Gamera 3, um, while there were certain elements in the other two films that I, I might have appreciated a little bit more, Gamera 3 had the most heart of all of them. And, you know, I'll say that one aspect that I really appreciated um, was the ending. I, I thought the ending was yes. absolutely awesome. Yes. And that roar, um, that roar that we get um, that brings Ayana back to life. To me, this is the first time where I was, I was thinking to myself, is this really a roar or is this more of a Gamera cry? Mm. Um, and I hadn't thought about that before until that specific moment. Um, and as I've said, I, I do think that this film is Kaneko asking the question, who is Gamera? And I think the answer to that is Gamera is the absolute guardian of the universe, which is probably needed even more now mm. than it was in 1999. So if I had to give this film a rating, I would give it a 4.5 out of 5, and it does rate or rank at the top of my list. You say it's hard to objectively rank these films, Steve. I agree, but we subjectively like <laughs> to have a fun time doing it. So. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, it, Alex, it, yeah. yeah, yeah, go ahead, Steve. No, no, I was just going to say, your, your comments are all spot on, and, and the ending is another example of... It, it especially is the, it's the prime example in this film of them of the filmmakers kind of defying your expectation. They don't give you the neat and tidy ending, and yet mm -hmm. the ending is is perfect. You know, because the movie yeah. is about as we talk about in in the commentary, it's a it's influenced by all this prior uh, literature and and you know film and other content about this, this obsession with the end of the world that mm -hmm. has been part of you know in Japanese culture for you know a number of decades, going back to this blockbuster bestseller from the 70s that was about the prophecies of Nostradamus which predicted that the world would come to the, to end to the to an end in July of 99 and so uh, that's kind of the one of the premises they were working under and that's why I think the film ends the way it does with this kind of cliffhanger of uncertainty it's great for sure yeah. Alex what about you man uh, yeah, I think Revenge Virus is a great Gamera film, and this, and maybe just a great film in general. And despite having not much Gamera in it, it works because every moment is still somehow tied to Gamera in very interesting ways. Whether it's building the mythology, weighing the cost of his existence among humanity, we get a lot of in the way of spirituality that gives us that extra mile to sink our teeth into something I really liked about the Godzilla anime trilogy. Just get, having something to sink my teeth into and to stew on for hours afterwards is something that I love about some of these films and something that's surprisingly infrequent among a lot of monster movies. Uh, but what I, the only downside of this movie for me was some of the characters a couple characters uh i'm even blanking on their names they're the two possibly Me evil one of them <laughs> seems to be a Mito. nihilist yes mito and shinya yeah, yeah they're, they're two characters that i actually think this movie could have done without or they could have been rolled into one character something could have been done to streamline their part of the movie because they seem they seem interesting and then they end up dragging the movie down a little bit but they're really my main complaint of the movie. Otherwise, 
this movie does a lot of bold things and that ending is stellar and it's interesting because when i first watched this movie i felt it was down and dour but when i caught it 10 years later now i felt like it felt really hopeful and was actually guardian. It really felt like Gamera is the absolute guardian of the universe. And it felt a lot more hopeful to me this time around. And I didn't know if this could, and I still don't know if I like it more than two, but the more I talk about it, the more I think about it. And the fact that it is giving me that extra bit to chew on, it's going to put it up at a 4.5 for me, Nice, Nice. which puts it at the top of my Gamera movies. There you go. There you go. Well, cool. Uh, at this point, Steve, let's talk about some of your creative projects that you have in your near future. I know you mentioned Kaiju Masterclass uh, for us. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Kaiju Masterclass, uh, thank you. It's a, an upcoming event that I am uh, one of the organizers of. It's going to be uh, happening the weekend of October 2, 3, and 4. Uh, it's a totally free online uh I guess you could call it a convention. It's a series of uh, talks, uh, discussions, conversations uh, that'll be live streamed over our YouTube channel. Uh, if you're and I, we can't announce the guests yet because we're still in the process of confirming them and uh, putting together our schedule. But I can tell you, we're going to have some really uh, interesting guests. And our goal, you know, we're calling it a master class, which you know is trying to be a little clever there. But the idea is to have talks and conversations where you hopefully people will learn a little something about this genre. We're going to try to do a little bit of deep dive into the creative process behind it. Uh, we have, probably are going to have some things about unmade projects and you know how and why they they didn't happen, but you know how deep how close they got to to happening, including a couple of projects that you've probably heard of. Well, hopefully you've heard of all of them, but, um, and, you know, I really wish I could tell you who the guests are, but it's some of the things that just still need to be, you know, finalized and confirmed. But, um, if people we'll are keep in, an eye out for it yeah, for sure, and be announcing them, uh, through our Twitter and, and on our podcast. Okay. Yeah. Our website is uh, kaijumasterclass.com. Uh, we're on Twitter. I think, uh, geez, I don't have it in front of me. I think <laughs> I should know this, but our, our Twitter handle I believe, is, is kaiju underscore MC. Uh, we're on Facebook. If you look for Kaiju Masterclass there, we have a Facebook page now. And uh, we're going to be tweeting out and, uh, you know, posting a lot of stuff on social, uh, you know, as we go forward. And I think it's going to be really cool. The, the people, uh, some of the people behind it with me are uh, Eric Hominick from akiraifukube.org. He's a Ifukube's biographer. John DeSentis, who was the uh, conductor of the uh, uh Kaiju Crescendo and the, the series of concerts that have been held in conjunction with uh, G-Fest last couple of years. Uh, Patrick Galvan, who's a, a writer for uh, sci-fi.com. Uh, Kyle Gilmore, who's a, a filmmaker. And uh, and we, we are just kind of getting rolling now, but uh, things are going pretty darn well. And, uh, of course, the, the two guys from, who you know, your friends from uh, Kaiju Transmissions, uh, yeah. Matt and Kyle, are, are a big part of it. Everybody's a big part of it. So it just kind of grew out of this kind of uh, idea that was born in a Facebook comment thread, and we decided to do something. So Sounds great. Cool. Sounds great. That's awesome. So, yeah. Next week on the podcast, we're actually doing a Heisei Trilogy uh, 
Roundtable, uh, which we're excited about. But then the week after that, we have Gamera the Brave. Alex, did you prepare a uh, rhyme for us for Gamera the Brave? I did not, but lots of stuff rhymes with Brave, Eric, Go. <laughs> uh, in case you didn't know. So what next week is Gamera the Brave. Is it what we crave? Will we rave? Or uh, Snave? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Alex. <laughs> or World our world opinions is, cave. There we go. There we go. Or world our opinions. I like it. Uh, at mine is. I, I thought about brave, but brave was t- a little bit too easy. So I said, as the last of the bunch, does Gamera the brave pack a punch or become a butt munch? Oh my gosh, Eric! You really that. <laughs> Uh, you you should, gave you, me a hard time with mine. Thanks, thanks for thanks for bearing with us, Steve. We appreciate you should, it. You, you, you should be arrested. I mean, that's <laughs> that's not unforgivable. <laughs> Steve, you have? Do you happen to have a rhyme for Gamera the Brave? You want to throw our way? Uh, you know, I have a reputation to protect. So, uh, you know, it's <laughs> the funny thing is, I, I was listening to you, and I I guess I misunderstood the rules of the game. Uh, your your butt munch uh, was a much more creative than I thought you could even be. I thought you were, the goal was to rhyme it with the title of the film, but I think you you've given the there's a little, a little bit more creative latitude there. Uh, oh wow! Our reputations. Okay. Well, sorry, lost I'll our edit Steve out of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. I'll just edit him out completely after those comments. There, there once was a brave film called Gamera that was shot with an Airyflex camera. Uh, da 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 da. Well, you finished the limerick. There you go. There you go. Look at that. Ooh, kill him. There we go. Yeah. Uh, Steve didn't even know he was going to become a rapper on this episode, but uh, here we are. Dear Lord. Um, <laughs> As always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at MVM underscore pod. Uh, I'm on Letterboxd at Mr. Eric Neely. Email us at mvmpod at gmail.com or leave us feedback at mvmpod.com. Of course, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash mvmpod and receive weekly bonus off-the-cuff episodes. And if you feel so led, leave us a review on iTunes. Monsters vs. Men is produced by Alex Kernett. Michael Herndon and Faye Basir are executive producers. Special thanks to our wives, Rock Band for PlayStation 3, Senor Honda, Drew the Collector, our Instagram connector, and you, the listener, for listening. Until next week, try, try to, to oh stay <laughs> alive. <laughs> See you, everybody. See ya. Bye. realized gamma falcon punched iris that's your that's your that's your closing line right there that's the one that comes after the song at the end of the episode Alex. yeah